All right, so I'm going to say good morning again. My name is Monica Jean. I'm a field crops educator based in the Saginaw Bay region, and I'm here to host another virtual breakfast with all of you. So thank you for choosing to join us this morning, and maybe you're eating your breakfast or maybe you're already out uh, working on the farm, but we really appreciate it. So there's a couple things that we're going to need to do housekeeping-wise. Um, the collection of demographic data from program participants is an important and mandated aspect of all Michigan State University Extension programming. This is voluntary and the information that you provide will not be used in any way to identify you personally, but rather as an anonymous member that participated in this program. Please take a moment to answer the questions in the poll that is opening on your screen. Thank you. I think we're all set, Monica. All right. Thank you, Phil. Oh, no, my computer's being wonky. Sorry about that. All right. So if you could please mute yourself during the presentation. I want to remind everyone the way that we um, process for you to get RUP credits is that we confirm your name is on here. So you're going to need to make sure that your name is um, appearing on the on your little box, and you're going to do that by clicking on the participant list icon, find, finding your name, and um, hover overing that or clicking on it, clicking more and renaming, and then typing your name into that window. And we ask you to please put your first and last name. I also want to remind everyone that the number one way we interact with everybody is using the chat box. So as you have questions that come up with Matt or Jeff's presentation, if you could please enter those into the chat box, I will diligently be looking at them and as appropriate, we'll be asking them for you. So with that, Matt, if you wanna go ahead and share your presentation. All right, so Matt Gammons is here to talk to us about uh, the carbon market, and he's an agricultural economist at Michigan State University. Thanks, Monica. Um, I'm still seeing it, by the way, in PowerPoint, like not shared as a pre. There you go. There you go. All right. Um, Awesome. Thanks everyone for being here today. Um, struggled a little bit on the title, so I, I'm definitely going to talk about carbon markets. I'm also going to talk a little bit about kind of policy in general, mostly policy that's pretty related to carbon markets, kind of um, environmental programs run by the USDA. Um, and then I just have, I have one slide just in case you missed it from everywhere else, just like three sentences about the, the latest WASD, just so you at least kind of know what direction things are going. Um, I know that you have a lot of other probably good resources for that, um, but just wanted to have it in here um, a little bit. So um, yeah, my name is Mac Ammons. I'm an assistant professor in the agricultural econ department here at Michigan State. So um, carbon markets, carbon credits, probably hearing a, a bit about them. Um, it's possible you've seen this slide before, um, the rest will be new, but just kind of a, a quick refresher. Um, we wanna think about these, these credits as representing an amount of carbon that's either not emitted or is sequestered on the farm. So this is kind of, you have some, some sort of baseline 
you know, your farm is taking carbon out of the air, putting it in the soil. You're also releasing carbon. That's some baseline. Something changes. And then there's some different level. And that difference um, is kind of something that if it can be documented, um, it can potentially be sold uh, through some of these programs. Um, so we really want to think about these not as, you know, growing carbon. I know that's kind of a, a buzzword right now, but I, I would really think about it as just kind of a payment for a change of production practices um, and the associated documentation that goes along with that production change. Um, there's, there's a lot of different practices that qualify, but the, the big two, the overwhelming two are, are cover cropping and no-till. Um, so especially um, in, in row crops, these are, these are really the two that we're thinking about. So steps here, um, reaching a contract with one of these kind of many programs, a lot of them organized by, by names that you're going to be familiar with, you know, Indigo, Bayer, ADM, um, setting up a contract with them, then a documentation pro process where you're kind of showing that you're doing what you said you're going to do. Um, and then a price, that price can change over time. So typically what happens is, you know, you lock in some minimum price. Uh, and then you're still going to be allowed to kind of get the upside if the if the price increases, um, you know, ultimately kind of leading to to a payment. And we'll talk a bit about kind of what what the size of that payment can be. Um, you know, the headline result right now, I think, is um, these payments aren't big. Um, so there's there's a lot of programs. We've seen a lot of activity kind of in this marketplace. Um, but I, I think we still have yet to see kind of proof that these can be, you know, big time profit increasing um, for most people. Um, but there's going to be a few exceptions and a few cases where I think they, they really might make sense for some folks. And we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. Um, so kind of nationally and even internationally, you know, prices for, for carbon credits and kind of a, think about it as a willingness to pay by consumers and governments um, for more carbon friendly practices is going up. So this is this is from the New York Stock Exchange's kind of index of carbon offsets, um, which you can think about as a, as a carbon credit. Um, so this is not just specifically tied to ag. This could be forestry or in the energy sector. People, again, making changes to their production practices. They're going to have you know, less carbon and then going to the marketplace and trying to sell it. So you know, just in the past uh, month, we've seen a 30% increase in these prices. Um, and these are also way up from last summer. So about double the prices that were being sold last summer. So that doesn't mean that kind of the contract that you come up with might not have this exact price because um, these aren't kind of a, a perfect commodity. Sorry, these aren't like a perfect commodity the way that, you know, number two yellow corn is. Um, you know, there's, there's quality differentials and it's going to depend on your specific circumstances. But we can say that overall, kind of across the board, um, the demand for this is increasing and so the price is increasing as well. And so, you know, what, what's driving that? Um, it, this is really kind of, th these price changes are driven by the demand side. So there's been kind of increasing interest of, um, you know, mostly corporations, um, particularly large corporations in kind of documenting to their consumer base that they have environmentally friendly practices. So, um, you know, that's something that they've kind of always given lip service to. Um, and these new markets have given them an opportunity to kind of actually pour some money into it. And a lot of them have, you know, taken that opportunity to do that. And, you know, when they pour money into it, you know, the price goes up. There's more demand, price increases. 
So, um, you know, I'm not a shill for Indigo, but I do think that this example kind of illustrates, you know, what, what's changing. So, so last summer, Indigo had financing at, at $20 a ton. Um, so $20 per ton of CO2 that they could show was being kind of sequestered on farms. Um, they recently secured financing at $40 a ton. So that's, you know, a doubling in one year. So that's, that's a big change. Um, I get this question a lot, kind of, you know, you, we see these numbers out there and those are not the numbers that farmers get. So they are not really the number that matters. Um, you know, carbon could be trading for $100 a ton, but if farmers are only getting $20 of that, um, then, you know, who cares? So um, for this case, you know, farmers would receive $30 a ton, so 75% of the overall price. Um, and then who's getting the difference, right? So so some of that is going to third-party verifiers, right? So this, these aren't Indigo employees. These are kind of other companies that they're going to hire to bring in to kind of verify that their systems are in fact reducing carbon. Um, and then, uh, you know, they don't release all their financials, but presumably there's some leftover that's going to just kind of go for Indigo to, you know, pay their overhead and then also take a profit. So um, I, I know there's a lot of interest um, sometimes in kind of how much how much profit are these are these folks making off these? Um, you know, I, I'm not privy to those numbers, but um, it's definitely not zero, right? You know, these people are getting into these markets because they think there's a profit opportunity. So uh, again, these numbers, you know, even if you have the, the $30 per ton that would be going to the farmer, you know, you kind of still don't have all the information you need, right? Because yeah. You know, who really knows what's in a, a ton of carbon? You know, what does that really mean? So I did some kind of rough back of the envelope calculations. And, you know, I don't take this to the bank, but, you know, if you're on kind of what NRCS would call kind of highly erodible soils, these types of prices would be equating to a payment roughly in the ballpark of $9 an acre for going from no cover cropping. So cover cropping was something that was not part of your operation to cover cropping. So $9 an acre, you know, that's, you know, that's not like fantastic. It's not going to like save the farm. It's not some miracle. Um, but, you know, relative to where we were last summer, where I think the cargo program um, and maybe Indigo as well was, um, you know, offering $3 an acre for cover cropping, which is like kind of laughably low, you know, $9 is a lot better and starting to kind of get in the ballpark of, of numbers that kind of seem serious. Um, so one question in the chat, um, were the values on the, um, yeah, on the, so on the graph I show, so this is a, this is an index. Um, so I think it, you know, it roughly maps to about a, a tenth of a, a tenth of a ton. So, so no, so the, those numbers aren't indicating um, $4 a ton. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a kind of an index of across different offsets. So it kind of depends on the time scale that you're sequestering for kind of what the value is. I, I wish I could give you a clear answer, but it's it's a little hazy to me as well. So those are kind of big macro level changes in these marketplaces. Um, in Michigan, the story is mostly that you know more folks are getting in, so more more companies are deciding that it's kind of worth their time to start programs here rather than, you know, just stay in the I states and try and make their money there. So new program offerings from ADM, who's partnering with the Farmers Business Network, Corteva, Cargill, all these programs are new in 2022 or coming in 2023. 
So these programs are pretty much always um, rolled out with kind of digital platforms. So if you're familiar with um, Climate Field View through Bayer, um, th these are things that they want you would have first. These are sort of, you know, you have to you have to pay for this service to even kind of get in the game and be eligible um, for the um, for enrolling in carbon credits. So um, so you should really if you're if you're not in these right now, you should think about that as kind of like another step that you would have to take is you would have to kind of first um, be enrolled in one of these digital platforms um, and then kind of applying to share your data from these platforms with them to allow you to be enrolled in these programs. Uh, so another question from the chat, um, do you only credit on changes to practices? Um, so the, sh the short answer to that is, is yes. Um, all these programs want to see kind of a documented change in practices. Um, now, kind of some of these programs, Bayer's in particular, will allow you to go back a little bit in time and get kind of credit for, for recent changes that happened kind of before you enrolled. Um, that's not the norm. The norm is they really want to enroll you, then have you change, and then kind of only pay for the difference in practices. So that is kind of, you know, understandably really frustrating to a lot of folks who have been kind of engaged in some of these practices for, for a longer time period. Um, it's it's something that I, I really hope is kind of addressed in the 2023 Farm Bill. And I think increasingly kind of the, the ag community is, is kind of united in their, their efforts of communicating the need for kind of some ability to compensate for past practice changes, um, you know, through, through these markets um, or through kind of a government substitute of these markets. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that that will be part of the conversation in the 2023 Farm Bill um, because, yeah, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to think too hard about it to think, you know, uh, if doing these practices for free means I can never, ever get paid um, and other people are, you know, maybe I just won't do them at all until I really have kind of waited around for the price to be right. And and that's kind of not what these programs want. Right. They do not want to, like, incentivize people, you know, not doing things that they're interested in and that they would have potentially done anyways. So that's kind of the, the reverse of the point. Um, and so I, I think that that's a that's a policy problem um, that I think is kind of increasing in salience, which is good. Okay, I, I'm I'm being told I'm going too slow, so I'll I'll pick up the pace a little bit. Um, I think I think I should be still done on time though. Um, so yeah, these digital platforms, you know, the the pros and cons that they're much broader than this just these programs, right? Um, so pros, easy monitoring, less paperwork. That that's true just across the board. That's the benefit of these programs. But the downsides are, you know, a lot of the data ownership issues. Who really owns this data? Um, and then at an industry level, you know, if if these you know, handful of companies kind of can enroll you in a long-term contract and they have all of your information, but you, know, you don't have any of the, the information that they're collecting from other folks, um, there's a market power concern that they might be able to kind of use pricing mechanisms that are kind of not fair, basically. Um, so expanded offerings overall across the state, but still very limited for specialty crops. So these are a couple things at the federal level that are are not passed yet that are you know potentially in play in the near future. So um, you know last summer I think I probably told you that the Growing Climate Solutions Act was very likely to pass. Well, kind of have egg on my face on that one. It has been stalled in the House for a, a full year now. Um, it's it's 
honestly not clear to me why. It looks like the votes are mostly there. Um, but at this point, I think it's pretty likely to be scrapped and rolled into the 2023 Farm Bill. Um, what this would do is it would kind of rather than having kind of all these private actors who are, you know, calling themselves verifiers, it would set up a process for these actors to get accredited through the USDA, um, basically having kind of a common set of guidelines on kind of what constitutes, um, you know, a good carbon credit and what sort of measurement protocols are accepted and what sort of measurement protocols aren't accepted um, and being having that be authorized by the USDA. A good chance that kind of if something like that were to come through, you'd see at least a little bit increase in prices as kind of the buyers of these had more assurance that they were paying for something that was kind of real and meaningful. Um, also have the No Emits Act. This is introduced by uh, a Republican out of Illinois. And basically what this would do is it's adding a soil health transition incentive to the USDA's Environmental Quality Insurance Program, EQIP. Well, you'll hear more about that in just a second. Um, and that would kind of increase by 90 million payments to farmers. Um, and it's not clear to me yet kind of how this interacts with my next slide, um, which is the recently passed um, Inflation Reduction Act. So I'm only gonna talk about the ag components of this act. So it's a big spending bill, uh, well, sorry, a big spending law. Um, and I just wanna kind of break down the ag components of that. So you probably heard about this in the news, um, it's not an ag bill on the whole, um, but there is still 20 billion in ag spending. So it still has kind of big implications. And most of that is going for programs that look pretty darn similar uh, to some of these carbon credit programs. So eight and a half billion to the USDA ECRIP. And these are mostly to go out and increase funding for NRCS to set up contracts with farmers um, for cover cropping. So that's kind of a, a lot of money that wasn't in... <laughs> the USDA's coffers to pay for cover cropping that now is. Um, so, you know, that's gonna just kind of, again, flood more of these markets with kind of more demand side dollars. Um, in addition to those eight and a half billion, uh, we have 3 billion for the conservation stewardship program. This is for people who are already enrolled in some conservation efforts and looking to expand. So this is kind of a good option for people who might be kind of frozen out of markets based on kind of already doing a lot of these practices. Um, and then a little bit for the Ag Easement Program. Um, I'm gonna skip this. Basically, uh, what this pie chart shows is about half of that 20 billion um, is for conservation dollars and half is for other rural development and forestry um, of the Ag Committee funding. So USDA EQIP kind of versus carbon market, private carbon market programs. These programs are similar in spirit, documented changes on farm leading to a payment with the goal of kind of environmental protection. Um, historically, EQIP hasn't been, you know, really carbon focused. I, I think politically the winds are changing on that. I think kind of going forward, kind of carbon, carbon saving practices are going to kind of be boosted up in, in EQIP and are, are going to be more of a priority in enrolling in these programs. Um, this is in bold. Don't, don't enroll in a private program prior to trying to enroll in EQIP. Go the other direction. So um, it's not clear yet that EQIP will kind of allow you to be eligible if you're kind of already enrolled um, in a private program. Um, there are still a few private programs that will take um, applicants who are enrolled in EQIP. So, so don't try to go kind of private into EQIP. 
Um, that's kind of my, my best guidance at this point. Um, if you're in Equip currently and find an opportunity to enroll in Carbon Credit Program on top of that, that's a good deal. And that deal could go away. So in general, my advice is these programs, you know, kind of wait and see. An exception to that is if you kind of get paid twice for the same practice change, um, you know, that that's a pretty good deal and something that you should consider probably pretty seriously. Um, markets are changing fast. Um, still a lot of uncertainty. Prices are in increasing. I think that's likely to continue. Um, if you're already thinking about some of these practices, they might make sense. If you're not, they probably don't. You know, the, the dollars involved are just not enough to, you know, go out and, you know, do something that you're not interested in and don't want to do. Um, and, you know, shopping around, always super important. All right. I, I ran through my time too fast. Um, WASD highlights, corn yield estimates are cut. Um, more supply coming out of Eastern Europe. Um, wheat supply and demand are both projected to increase as we go into the fall and winter. So kind of unclear price implications of that. Um, and soybean stocks are, are project projected to go up. So those are kind of the, the top line numbers out of that. Um, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, happy to do questions. Um, otherwise, hand it over to Jeff. No, no problem, Matt. You're just like a minute over, so you're good. But um, right. well, we will. We usually do questions at the end, so we'll just hold for now. You got a couple, but we'll let people, you know, simmer in what you said. I'm sure we'll get some more. So if you want to go ahead and take down your screen, and Jeff, I'll go ahead and let you share, and then we can get cooking. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Monica and, and Matt. And uh, good morning to everyone, depending on where you are. Uh, it's either it's a, actually a fairly cool morning across much of Michigan. Uh, there's some fog because of the, the cool surface conditions, but uh, it is a indicative of this uh, Canadian origin air mass that's been across the region for the last several days, and actually longer than that into uh, into last week. If we look at mean temperatures here for the previous week on the left, uh, you can see cooler than normal weather, and and that's been a little bit of an exception. Uh, for, uh, for, for well, for many sections of the Midwest, but definitely for the central and eastern Corn Belt here, a cooler than normal week with, as I say, northwesterly flow aloft and uh, and Canadian air over the, uh, so mean temperatures here generally from three to five degrees Fahrenheit below normal, one of the cooler weeks that we've had during the growing season. On the right-hand side, the big news really in terms of precipitation was weather system we had go through over the weekend on Saturday and Sunday. And you can clearly see that it, this actually looks more like a, uh, a cool season type of uh, weather event. We usually see spotty, convective shower thunderstorm type activity in the in the warm season, the growing season that <clears throat> results in a whole lot more spatial discontinuity. But this one is really, uh, really pretty interesting. You can see the swath of one half to one inch solid totals and then with some embedded totals, uh, in some cases, more than four inches of rain fell uh, in West Central Lower Michigan here on Saturday. That's in the, uh, the, the area in the yellow is two inches plus, but uh, very, very unusual weather uh, type of pattern for the growing season. But it's also important to note that while there was uh, extensive uh, widespread rainfall in western parts of lower Michigan, the eastern part remained dry. And you can see that clearly it's a, right in the middle of central Michigan. We have a very, very steep gradient uh, with uh, going down to essentially no precip. So another drier than normal week for that part of the state. And that's that's certainly a continuing concern. As we look at soil moisture here on the left-hand side, 
this is these are uh, or this is soil moisture in the top three feet of the profile expressed in terms of a historical percentile. And so the the browns, especially the dark browns, are low values relative to history where we should be during the third week of August. And uh, they've they've had a color change uh, interestingly with this product out of out of NASA. Uh, the surpluses, which were in green, are now in a uh, shade of blue. I'm not really sure. I'm still looking into that. Was why that why that happened? But uh, you can see that uh, the bottom line is again for eastern sections of Lower Michigan, particularly the Saginaw Valley and the Thumb. That that continues to be the relatively the driest part of the state. And you, and of course they missed some of the precipitation here last week. Still about six to seven percent of the state. In, on the right-hand side here, recently in the D1 moderate drought category, the yellow is D0 or, or abnormally dry, and we still have some of that. But again, uh, major changes in the western part of lower Michigan, given a lot of rainfall over the last few weeks, but not nearly as much in the east. I think that's the, the bottom line here with moisture. Degree days after a cooler than normal week, we still have the same general spatial pattern in, in uh, Michigan relative to seasonal degree day accumulations. This is back to the beginning of May. Uh, surpluses across the far south, that's even with the cooler than normal week, and some deficits up north. Uh, several days, maybe uh, calendar days is what that would translate to in the far north. But uh, there again, at this point, there, we're not way behind or way ahead really anywhere. We're uh, in this pattern with, with deficits north and surpluses south, we've seen all growing season probably will continue for at least the next couple of weeks, if not longer. Well, moving quickly here to our, our forecast, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a well uh, cloudy to a sunny day uh, or sunny start of the day here and cool across much of the state. But you'll notice we do have some scattered showers and thunder showers in the far northern part of the state across upper Michigan. And that's uh, that's a, a good pre or a, a good a sign of our forecast here for the next couple of days, we will see uh, a continued chance for scattered showers and a couple couple rumbles of thunder across Upper Michigan today. While the Lower Peninsula will remain mostly sunny uh, and dry, there is a chance we could see this afternoon, like yesterday, a uh, an isolated shower develop late in the day. But that there that would be few and far between. Uh, most areas again will be will be sunny, dry, and and relatively cool. Uh, high time high temperatures today, upper 70s north to the low 80s uh, in the south. Uh, by tomorrow, you can see off to our north and west again the next weather system beginning to form out there and make its way towards us. A continued chance for showers and thunderstorms again in Upper Michigan, mainly western and central sections. Uh, while once again sunny, fair, and dry uh, in in the south and uh, and central, mostly across much of the uh, Lower Peninsula, actually. Uh, temperatures will be a couple degrees warmer tomorrow and then uh, even a couple degrees warmer than that. So we should see by Saturday uh, warming up into the low to mid 80s for high temperatures in most areas. But the uh, the other big news is this is the really the next major weather system. You can see that as a, an area of low pressure out here over southeastern Minnesota with a couple frontal boundaries associated with that. That will slowly move from northwest to southeast across the state during the day Saturday, and for most of the state, uh, late Saturday, overnight Saturday and Sunday, this will be the, the greatest or highest risk of rainfall. I think most of us will see some rainfall. The, the question is how much, and uh, the 
the forecast guidance in this has been a little, little uncertain. Uh, while most areas will see precip uh, quarter to half inch amounts are, are probably the most likely category. We could see some isolated heavy rainfall, but in general, uh, again, I think quarter to half an inch is probably what most folks are looking at. Now, that system moves through by late Sunday. Uh, with precip chances by then confined mainly to the southeastern lower peninsula. We will see a lingering chance for some showers on Monday uh, in the southeastern part of the state. But after that, and for most of uh, most of Michigan, especially north and central, we will see uh, clearing off once again, cooler and drier. There will be some, again, you can see the high pressure here on uh, on Saturday morning, another Canadian high. And so for the early part of next week, we will be looking at cool, fair and dry conditions once again, similar to what we've seen for a lot of uh, of the past week. So that you get the the gist here of this this upper air pattern that we're in. For precipitation totals, it, it depends on where you are, but in general, most especially for the northern and central lower peninsula, once again, likely a drier than normal week here coming up through next Thursday. Exceptions to that, possibly in Upper Michigan, where we're expecting rainfall here both today and tomorrow, and then maybe along the southern border of the state, along Indiana and Ohio. But for much of the state, it will be, once again, a drier than normal week uh, looking ahead, and, and probably cooler than normal as well. Potential evapotranspiration rates, given the cooler than normal conditions, will be lower than normal. As you can see here, most totals between around an inch to uh, maybe 1.05. So uh, a little bit below where we typically see things in the third week of, uh, of August. And then looking into the medium range, not a whole lot of change. I, th I think it's important to look at the upper air projected here. Six to 10 and eight to 14 day outlooks are pretty similar in calling for the, the big ridge that's been parked over North America, some part of North America for much of the growing season. It's way out over the West Coast of the US. And there's a big trough, broad trough across central and eastern sections of North America with northwesterly flow, a continuation again of, of, of what we've seen recently here. And that leaves Michigan essentially in a border or boundary area between uh, warmer than normal conditions to our, our east and then a little cooler than normal conditions to our, our west and south. You can see that here again up at the top, uh, really not a, not a lot of direction there. The uh, same thing is true for, oops, same thing is true for precipitation. And uh, again, you, you can see we don't have to go very far to see either wetter than normal or drier than normal, but we're, we're sort of parked in between. And, and as we have said here over the last several weeks, while this officially is no, no direction to, uh, either way for temps or precip, uh, if we move the ridge of this axis a few hundred miles one direction or the other, it could make a significant difference in this. I would also say that the guidance, while it is, it is consistent here for the next week and a half, beyond that into late August, there are some changes suggested once again. Most of those point towards warmer than normal mean temperatures. Once again, we will have a, a later this morning here, the Climate Prediction Center will be releasing a new ensemble of long lead outlooks. I would be surprised if they didn't call for warmer than normal conditions here, again, as especially as we move into September. And that's what the outlook, warmer and actually drier than normal is, is the direction that those outlooks have been uh, for the last few weeks. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that's where they will be with the new ones here later today as well. 
So wrapping up, uh, more of really more of the same, but we do have an extended chance for precipitation here, rainfall over many areas beginning in the north today and tomorrow, and then spreading across the state over the weekend on Saturday and Sunday. And then uh, for next week, looking at cooler, uh, drier conditions once again over uh, for several days beginning of next week. And as you just saw with the medium range, more of the same out for about a week to two weeks, but then maybe a change towards warmer conditions uh, by the end of the month. And I'll stop there and transition uh, to introduce next week our topic. We're going to have another Q&A session with uh, all of our MSU Extension specialists uh, and uh, field crop or <laughs> and educators. Uh, so, so that will be bring your bring your tough questions, especially. That's the time to ask those next week. So we'll have a, a variety of and all all of our normal specialists and and will be on here. So bring your questions for next week. That's uh, next Thursday's virtual breakfast. And with that, I will turn it back to you, Monica, or Phil. Yeah, back to Phil. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Nice presentation this morning. All right. Thank you, everyone. And so it looks like we just had a couple questions in the chat. So far, they're for Matt. Um, I think you already answered the values that were on that graph. So I'm going to move on to, do you only credit on changes to practices? Yeah, I think I kind of answered this one too. So, so the the norm, the norm in general is 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 yes, these need to be changes. It's kind of a, a concept that in, in economics we call it additionality, um, which is the idea that these need to be additional changes. Um, so that, that's what these markets want to incentivize. Um, but as I said, there's there's a there's a very clear problem, right? Which is that um, if you kind of only pay for additional changes, then you give people an incentive to um, you know, sit around and wait or, you know, tear up their cover crops and not do it for five years and then try and get back in. Um, so there's there's definitely kind of opportunity for better, clear policies on that. Um, how far back is the look back period is a question in the chat. Uh, the Bayer program goes back five years. I'm pretty sure I, I would have to check my notes, but I'm pretty sure Bayer looks back five years. Um, but most of them don't look back at all. Most of them want fully additional programs. Um, sorry, fully additional practices. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I'm hoping that we get some more clarity in the 2023 Farm Bill. Um, it would be good to have, I think, more shared guidelines on look back periods um, that are bigger than zero. And Joe, I see your question. I'm going to go ahead and grab that link and then I... Um... I know what the details are right now. There is an MSU um, registration link, so I'll go grab that in a second. And it's supposed to be very hands-on uh, where you come and the specialists are there. They wanted smaller groups. I think right now there's still 40 spots open for registration. And this is, by the way, a B&B Diagnostic Field Day. Um, I think it starts at 8.30 in the morning. And it would be, I should say, the date as well. I believe it's Tuesday. Yes, the 23rd out at Saginaw Valley Research and Extension Center. So the, the Bean and Beat uh, Diagnostic Field Day. And so let me go grab that link. I think that should be all the information. But if, if you guys have any other questions, you're welcome to um, add that in the chat as well. 
Matt, I was going to ask you about the latest report that came out. Could you give us a little more detail? You went through that kind of quickly um, as far as supply and demand and how that's going to affect our prices going into the fall. Yeah, um, so I, I can't necessarily give you a ton more detail because, um, you know, I, I just kind of went through the, the summary myself. Um, so, um, the, yeah, the, the big line numbers are that um, due to due to some weather issues um, and then some increased supply out of um, Eastern Europe, you know, corn is looking, um, you know, that those prices have kind of downward. Sorry. Um, so, so it's offsetting actually. So, so, um, so there's more supply, um, but then also there's kind of weather issues in the U S so it's, a, it's a little unclear what will happen kind of with prices there. Um, the, the yield was cut by 1.6 bushels, um, was kind of the USDA's yield estimate is down. Most of the, the private forecasts have something similar or even steeper declines projected, um, again, due to some of the weather issues. Um, wheat, I think, there's kind of increasing optimism that there's going to be a big supply response, um, especially um, out of areas in Illinois and um, areas kind of farther west, increasing wheat acreage. Um, so I think there's kind of expectations for a big supply response there, um, which uh, again would then kind of maybe temper some of people's expectations for price increases. So, I mean, everyone knows that we're in a big wheat shortage. Um, you know, we need way more wheat. Um, and I think increasingly people are kind of optimistic that that we might get it. So, um, so that's kind of some downward pressure there. Um, for people who want kind of a really in-depth summary um, of the WASDE report, uh, Purdue University puts out um, a, a really great YouTube video. So it's a couple of their uh, economists there and they, they kind of go through really, really slowly, um, kind of it's about an hour total and they'll talk through kind of all of the, the, the changes to stocks and supplies um, uh, and they, they do a really nice job. So if you just Google kind of Purdue University WASD update, um, you know, it, it should pop right up. Um, and so that would be my recommendation for, for folks who are, are interested in a more kind of extensive overview. Um, Sorry, I don't know if that was helpful or not, Phil, but that, that's what I got. No, that was fine. Thank you, Matt. All right. Um, I will just pause for a second, see if anyone else is submitting a question. I'll mention that next week, of course, we uh, have an additional virtual breakfast. That's the Q&A again. So, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you'll see me again. I'm the host for those as well. So uh, please think of um, any concerns you have. And actually over the um, week, if you even want to submit them to me and I can go ahead and let make sure those specialists are on, I can put the my email in the chat box. Is there any other specialists that have updates? This is Chris here. Can I do an update? Of course. Uh, so one thing that's happening is in these dry areas, you saw the map, it showed the thumb and then a little bit of central Michigan. That's kind of the area where probably mite infestations would still be present. 
Uh, but for a lot of the rest of the state, if you plant it on time and you have a canopy, we're getting those sort of juicy mornings. And underneath that canopy, this is where the entoma pathogens come in and uh, wipe the mites out. It's called neozygites. It happens very quickly. So the damage might still be there on edges, but uh, this is the time of the year where it's making that mite control decision is really difficult. It's easier at the beginning of August, but now we're in that sweet spot where biocontrol is beginning to come in. So a lot of times it doesn't pay, even if it looks gross. So if, again, if you're late planted, there's no canopy, it's dry, you're up in, I don't know, the thumb area, and you're looking at that field and it just looks terrible. Uh, for corn, this time of the year, it doesn't usually pay out at all. I mean, we're, we're past corn, but maybe there's some a few fields. And be really careful what you spray because you can flare those mites right back if you spray um, a product that that doesn't kill them. And there's many products that don't kill them. So, Chris, should we be looking for fall armyworm this year again? I, I didn't you know, see I've got, we've got traps out and I've got zero, 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 zero. There was a huge number of fall armyworms uh, in Texas. And I thought for sure we'd, we'd catch a flight and we just didn't. Uh, I think I've caught two so far or something. Um, you know, that's a good question if I should look at the, at the map here, but I've heard nothing. It has been like crickets as far as, but Last year, probably it would have been early August where that flight would have come in that then led to the forage damage. That's what I'm, what I'm guessing. So I don't, I don't have any is what I'm saying. I haven't seen any. I have had very few as well. That's what happens. If you trap, you get rid of them. <laughs> if you put some money into it, a few bucks, you get rid of them. So, all right. Well, any other specialists have an update? Thank you, Chris. With that, thank you for joining us for another virtual breakfast, and we hope to see you next week.